Well, this evening we look to Lord's Day 48, which considers what it means when we pray, Thy kingdom come. But before we turn to that, I'd like to read with you from one of the last chapters in the Bible, Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Not a book from which we read very often, but it's a book that describes in very prophetic language. In fact, it borrows the language of the Old Testament prophets and the imagery of the Old Testament prophets more often than not to foretell first the downfall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and then against that backdrop the greater judgment that is to come against all those who are unbelievers, against all of those who turn away from the Lord in uh, pervasive rebellion. Well, in chapter 19, we read, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron." He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has, written, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of, your, of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of people who sit on them, and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. 
and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen. Sober and yet victorious image for the kingdom of God. Well, speaking of the kingdom of God, Lord's Day 48, you can find that on page 61 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Lord's Day 48 comes to us with one single simple question. What does the second request of the Lord's Prayer mean? Thy kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. And do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all and all. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord, Jesus instructs us to pray, may your kingdom come. And few aspects of the prayer that we are to pray is as often misunderstood as this one. Many assume, I know I certainly did for many years, that this is a request speaking of events that are entirely future, having nothing to do or nearly nothing with the day-to-day realities that we face. But in fact, this portion of our prayer, thy kingdom come, is exceptionally relevant to our everyday life. But to understand that, we need to understand exactly what is meant when Jesus speaks of his kingdom for which we are to pray. Many regard the kingdom as an entity which will come only after Jesus has returned. After he has come to judge all of those who've ever lived, then they say he will establish his kingdom here on earth. Others regard the the coming of the kingdom as that which happens before the judgment, but still after Jesus comes back. And, And still others regard the kingdom as coming both before the judgment and before the return, but it's still future, they say. It's still not yet a present reality. But that's not what the Bible taken as a whole teaches us. Those views, some of them are, they're they're sincerely held. But frankly, they're taken from snippets, often taken out of context. When we look at Revelation as a whole and the prophets as a whole, we find a different view of the kingdom that makes it, that demonstrates it to be very relevant to our life here and now today. With this second request of the Lord's Prayer, Christ is calling us to pray for the completeness of his kingdom. And that kingdom for which we are to pray is an already present reality today. We are members of the kingdom of God for which Jesus wants us to long and work and pray that its completeness might be manifested and experienced by us and by all the world. So what exactly is this kingdom for which we are to pray? Well, the, the kingdom, brothers and sisters, is the kingdom for which the prophets of old eagerly longed, and which they wrote many 
insights about. Daniel, for instance, foretold that the kingdom would begin small, like a stone carved with supernatural hands. But that stone that began so small would grow and increase until it filled all the earth and destroyed all of the merely human kingdoms among men until it filled all the creation. This was the kingdom of which Micah long, or for which Micah longed, of which we heard in our call to worship. The kingdom to which people of many nations would flow as to the, the hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord. And there they would go to hear the insights of God's law, to be directed by him, to, to follow after him. There in the kingdom, they would experience a peace and a prosperity that they could find nowhere else. This is the kingdom that John the Baptist came proclaiming, which he immediately proceed, preceded. John came preaching repentance for the kingdom of God. And he came proclaiming the coming of a great king. And it was his task to baptize and to recognize that king. And Jesus himself, he came preaching this kingdom which in him had drawn near. He spoke of this kingdom as that which immediately followed the ministry of John the Baptist. And he said many who heard him would not die before the kingdom came with power. This was the kingdom that came in its fullness when Jesus finished the work that he was given to do here on earth. When Jesus completed the suffering that he was to do for our sin. When he arose from the dead, a victor over the grave. When he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. When Jesus entered once for all of us into the most holy place, having offered the perfect sacrifice, having become the perfect mediator, having provided entrance for his people into God's presence. When all of that had occurred, the kingdom of God was established in truth. And now they enter it and possess it, who enter it by being born again, not of the water, but by the Spirit who enter it by the faith of a child, who enter it by hearing the voice of the shepherd and responding. They possess it who in faith hear and receive the will of God by the power of Jesus' Spirit. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that we possess through faith in Christ and by the transformation of our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But although we possess and we inhabit the kingdom, it has not come in all of its completeness yet. And that's what Lord's Day 48 reminds us. That's what this prayer reminds us. That we're longing for the completeness, for the fulfillment, for the absolute perfecting of the kingdom that Christ established. And we're going to see that that involves at least four things. And the first of those things is a complete submission from us. Just as with our prayer for God's name to be hallowed, so too it is here. This is a prayer, first of all, that we must aim at ourselves. Citizens of a kingdom, if they are to be good citizens, must be loyal to their king. They mustn't despise him. They mustn't ignore him. They mustn't refuse to honor and obey their king. But by nature, we're rebels. By nature, it's true of all men, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what's naturally true of us. We're rebels. 
And in our hearts we understand that that way of rebellion deserves judgment and death. We need Christ. Above all as our Savior to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to God. But also as our King. That he might teach us what it means for him to rule over us. For him to call the shots in our life. For him to guide us and lead us in the way that's pleasing to him. Now here's where we so often goof it up. We speak and we act as though we need to do it. We hear Jesus say in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And immediately we throw out our chests and we resolve to do better. As though it's about us. As though what we really need to do is just gain more knowledge about what Jesus wants of us. or just more willpower to actually accomplish it. But the longer we live before the Lord, the more we recognize that we can't and we won't. The longer we live before the Lord, the more we cry out with Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul understood the will of God better than any of us, I suspect. And he had an earnest desire to do what the Lord commanded. But it's not about knowledge or desire or willpower or any of that. It's about transformation. As members of the kingdom of God, we are called to submit. And that's not a calling we can ignore. Unless we begin to obey the Lord, we show our faith to be false. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And John emphasized that. In 1 John chapter 3, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, that is, does not live in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. So unless we begin doing right, unless we begin turning away from sin and turning toward righteousness, turning away from hatred and embracing a love for our neighbor, unless we begin doing that, we show that we're not truly in Christ, we're not truly members of the kingdom. But the problem is we can't do it. And so we need to pray for him to do it for us. Only God can replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Only God can cause us to delight in the knowledge of His will. Only He can make our sins truly hateful to us. He alone is able to give us the willpower and the ability to begin obeying His commands, following His instruction, heeding the counsel of our parents, of our elders, of our friends. And He will. Did you hear the shout of the the saints in heaven in Revelation 19? Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Kids, when he talks about the lamb, it's talking about Jesus, right? The great king and his wedding day has come near. And it says there that his wife has made herself ready. Who is his wife? Who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. 
And how does she make herself ready? Well, it says, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Linen is white. Wedding dresses back then were white too, right? To her it was given to be arrayed, to be clothed in fine linen, clean and bright, so that the church will be a glorious, beautiful bride for Christ. But what is that fine linen? It's symbolic. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We clothe ourselves for our wedding to Christ. We clothe ourselves to delight Jesus by putting on righteous acts, by beginning to turn away from our sin and to take up obedience to the Lord. But notice, it was given. It's not something we did by our own power, by our own steadfastness. This beautiful linen in which we are clothed, this beautiful wedding garment has been given to us by our husband Jesus. As members of the kingdom, our righteous acts are a gift freely given. But if we are to receive, then folks, we need to ask. We need to pray that God would bring the completeness of the kingdom starting in us by giving us complete submission to him. And along with that, we need to pray that he would bring complete strength to his church. You see, the church is the visible manifestation in time of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not a perfect embodiment. It's not a precise overlap in that there are within the church those who are not elect. But for our purposes, we can say that the church encompasses the kingdom. And seeking the strength of the church, we're seeking the completeness of the kingdom. And we, we talk about the, the strengthening of the church. We're talking about a few different things. First of all, it's increase. God has promised to gather his church in a particular, even a peculiar sort of way. He doesn't gather his church. He doesn't build his kingdom by marketing, sales tactics, coercive techniques. He doesn't do that. That's what Islam does, right? Convert or die. Or at the very least, pay a tax. Or you see the, the cults, they all use the greatest sales tactics that the human mind can devise. God doesn't use any of that to build his kingdom, to draw people in, no. He uses the righteous deeds of the saints as they experience his love through us, as they see the difference in our lives and they want to know more, and as we befriend them and we love them and we invite them to come. And having come, perhaps just out of curiosity, perhaps just to get you off their backs, they come and they, they hear something they've not heard. They hear that people aren't really good. And they hear... Everything is not right with you. And they hear, you can't do it. You can't fix it. You can't make it better. And that's something they don't hear in our world. That is antithetical to the sales tactics of our world, and it strikes them. And by the Holy Spirit, those who are ordained to be His, they begin to grasp that this news of their sin fits exactly with what they know of their life. And this news of the salvation of Christ is exactly the news they've always waited to hear. And they begin, they begin to long for that which they're hearing. They begin to accept as true that which they're told. 
And they begin to trust Jesus. And that's how they enter into the kingdom. In other words, the church increases not by the persuasion of men, but by the power of God. The word he sends, the spirit by which he transforms. It's what he promised in Micah 4, right after our call to worship. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. So we're called to pray that God would send his power, his word to gather his people. Now, if we're praying that, he's going to use us. He's going to give you a love for your neighbor. He's going to give you the courage to speak. He's going to give you the ability to explain your faith and even to invite them to church. But he's going to do it. And he's going to prepare their heart. And he's going to ensure that they hear from this pulpit exactly what they need to hear. So we're called to pray that God would draw them, that God would apply his word, that God would transform them. We must ask him to fulfill his promise from Micah 4. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And having seen him increase the church, we need to ask him to strengthen his church to endure. Because in this world we face many trials, many hardships and enemies. Obviously there's Satan who's still angry that he was unable to prevent the coming of the Son of God, the Savior. And so now he seeks to destroy those who follow him. And the world which hated Christ and now seeing Christ in his people hates us. And our own flesh, our old nature, which longs to follow after the passions that once defined us and is being denied. The devil, the world, and our flesh are enemies against which we cannot stand on our own. So we need God's strength to sustain us, and having asked, he will provide. Jesus tells us in Luke 13 that he longs to gather the children of God together as a hen gathers her chicks. You ever see that? Chickens are ruthless. They will pick on anyone new, anyone different, anyone smaller than them. If you raise up some chicks and you've already got a flock of chickens, it's really hard to introduce those chicks. You've got to wait until they're full grown and they can stand up for themselves because otherwise those chickens, that flock of chickens, will actually kill the chicks because they're new, they're different. But if a mama hen from that flock, she raises her chicks, when those other chickens come over to investigate and perhaps to attack, she gives one cluck and they gather under her wings. She protects them, she defends them. And she introduces them to the flock. And that's what we're praying for Jesus to do. To guard us, to guide us, to protect us in a way that we never could. We're praying for protection from enemies that are far greater than we can withstand. Knowing that he is infinitely greater than them. And not only to protect us, but to give us spiritual power as a church. We sometimes forget that the kingdom has come with power and that we possess that power. Look at Revelation 19. John describes Christ on his white horse with his great army behind him. And we read that and perhaps we think about angels. That's probably true as far as it goes. It's a spiritual battle. Surely angels are involved in the battle. Certainly every time angels encounter men, they have to warn them not to be afraid because they're so fearsome and so great. But look at verse 14. 
And the armies of heaven, or armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Did you hear that? The armies in heaven, the forces that fight on Jesus' side, that wage warfare with his power, they follow after him. And how are they clothed? Fine linen, white and clean. Who is clothed with fine linen, white and clean? That's you. That's us. We are the army of Christ. We are fighting the spiritual battle. We are the ones following after the white horse and him who sits upon it as the king of kings and lord of lords. We are part of that mighty army and we fight the battle even now. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Hear that? In our nation today, it seems like the battle is against flesh and blood, doesn't it? This faction against that faction. The police against the rioters. The Republicans against the Democrats. Whites against the blacks. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he says that's not where the real battle is. But rather against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where the real battle exists. That's what's stirring up all of the physical battle. And that's where the victory, well, it's already been won, but now it needs to be applied. We we talked about that this morning, right? The church must rely on Christ for its defense. It's by faith and love and hope that we receive the, the breastplate and the helmet that allow us to stand firm. And it's also we find here by the power of Christ that we receive the offensive power that we need. The Lord has called us to oppose Satan actively at the side of Christ our King. He has called us to take back the nations and to storm the strongholds of evil. It's not enough, in other words, for us to hunker down by ourselves and wait for the storm to blow over. No. Our King calls us to attack. And how do we do that? You know, in Ephesians 6, he tells us about the the armor of God's people. And among that armor, there's only one offensive weapon. And that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We fight at Christ's side, clothed with the armor of the Lord to protect us by His strength, but also to fight in His strength by the Word that He's given to us, which is a mighty sword that cuts into the heart of our neighbor, that reveals the inmost thoughts and desires and pains and struggles that he's unwilling to admit even to himself. We are called to fight against the enemy, not with guns and bombs, but by bringing forth the word of the Lord which reveals his heart and forces him to choose, will you continue down the path of death and destruction that will lead to eternal suffering? Or will you die to yourself? Will you die to your sin? Will you cast off the darkness that is identified you and will you take hold of the light that draws you into the kingdom of God when we lead them in that way and we can't change their hearts we can't convert them only he can do that but he uses us as instruments in his hand and when we do that we decimate the the army of the enemy and when we go out it's not just about speaking is it 
When we go out and we sit at pathways and we listen to that young lady who's hurting or that young man who is terrified and we show them the compassion that they were afraid no one would show to them and we offer to stand by their side as they walk through the effects and the results of their sin or as we go to the food shelf and we don't just put food in the bags of those individuals who come seeking help but we also remember their names and ask how their children are and show them that we care about them as individuals. Or when you go to your neighbor and you offer to help fix something around the house because you know that they're elderly and they're not able and you stick around to see if there's anything else you can help with. When we do that kind of thing, when we show that love, that care, that concern, we're fighting against the effects of a broken world in the name of the king who has conquered that brokenness. When we pursue justice, when we show mercy, when we speak truth and offer peace, we are fighting offensively against Satan. When you forgive your neighbor who has done you wrong, and instead of cutting them off or seeking to get vengeance against them, you show them good and love and do what's kind. You are fighting offensively in this battle. But you can't do it on your own, can you? We can't do it on our own. So we need to pray for his strength, for his ability to, to fight and we need to pray that he would bring justice against our enemy. We need to pray for victory. That means, first of all, we need to pray for daily victories. Whether you know it or not, you're fighting this fight every day. You're either doing it well or you're doing it badly, but if you're in the kingdom, you're fighting the fight every day. Now, if you talk to our soldiers who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, or our older soldiers who fought in Vietnam, you know that daily battle wears on a person. Pretty soon they lose their focus. It's hard to fight. But it's easier if they start winning. It's easier if the victory comes after victory after victory. So we need to pray for those daily victories, even small ones. The daily victory of the church against those pervasive sins. The daily victory of the church against selfishness. The daily victory of the members of the church against inwardness so that they can reach out to their neighbor or against worldliness so that they can show themselves to be different. We need to pray that God would give us daily victories so that we might persist in this war, so that we might persist in fighting on Jesus' behalf in his name. Now understand, Christ has bound Satan. He has limited power. And it's our calling now to take advantage of that binding. That means we need to pray for success in our calling to spread the gospel. We need to pray for words of hope that will lead to changed hearts. We need to pray for the mercy of the kingdom to cause defections among the, the enemy's ranks. We need to pray that the passion of our people will lead to an overthrow of Satan's works here in Marion County. That must be our prayer every day for the small victories that each of God's people might experience. But also we need to pray for the ultimate victory. 
when Christ comes on the clouds leading his armies behind him. On that day the beast and the prophet as we read, shall be captured and cast into the lake of fire. On that day, the leaders of the enemy army shall be destroyed by God's justice. That day will bring complete victory. The sword of the word of the Lord will slice deep into the ranks of his enemies and all of those who have been ordained to be in the kingdom. They will be recognized. They will be set apart. They will be triumphant while all the rest will acknowledge with bowed knee that they rebelled against the great king and they deserve his justice. That day will bring justice in all of its fullness. No more will there be temptations. No more will there be those who fight against the Lord. Never more will our little ones be led astray or will we have to struggle against the darkness. We should long for that day. We must pray for that day. We must be earnestly excited about that day. So ask today that the end of the battle might draw near because today the conflict rages on. And we should long for the end of the war. We should long for the peace of Jerusalem. We should be earnestly eager to see all of God's people. Can you imagine the joy we will have? We're no longer fighting against each other. We're no longer worried about enemies in our midst. We're no longer fighting against our sin and our weakness and our brokenness. We're no longer grieving over the loss of loved ones either physically in death or spiritually in unbelief. Won't that be amazing? We should be praying daily for the coming of that victory. When, when we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that's what we're praying. That he would come and he would bring the completeness of the victory that he's already won. On that day, we will sing the song with which this, this passage began. Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged what a wonderful time that will be. And on that day will come not only the fullness of all that is good for us, not only will we finally submit to God in the way that we can't right now, not only will we have strength to serve God that is perfect and undimmed, not only will His justice be revealed in all of its fullness, but on that day we will see the completeness of the glory of God. And that's the last thing we pray for here. Folks, ultimately when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're praying that God's glory would be magnified in all of its fullness. Because that's what's going to happen when every knee bows, when every tongue confesses that this is the Lord. When Christ is acknowledged as King and God the Father is, is recognized as the leader of all things, the maker of all things, the designer of all things, and the Holy Spirit's power is unveiled in all of its fullness. On that great day, when God's kingdom is completed, on that day, His glory will fill all things. Then we will hear this voice, praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And we will respond with all of the saints of every age. Imagine that. With a joyous, thunderous response. Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this must be our great longing. The goal that we seek. The glory for which we're eager. 
We need to pray daily for the completeness of the kingdom of Christ. It's already here. We're already part of it. But we need to pray that his kingdom would come in us, that his kingdom would be fulfilled in the church, that his kingdom would bring victory throughout the world. And that in his victory, in his kingdom, the glory of the Lord might fill all in all. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we do long for that kingdom, and yet, too often we get wrapped up in the things of this world, in the things of our day-to-day life, in the things that so often don't even matter. We get all focused on the little things, and we forget the great big thing of your kingdom. Father, grant that it might no longer be so, but that we instead might earnestly and eagerly long for and pray for the coming of the fullness of your kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made us to be part of that kingdom even now, that we might know ourselves to be the bride of Christ, being clothed by your power with the righteous deeds to which we've been called. Strengthen us individually. Strengthen us together Enable us to see the victories that you have ordained and speed the day of Jesus' return, Lord, that we might see the fullness of your glory erupt throughout all the creation. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.